In an age of uh, global warming and limited natural resources, malaria and AIDS, international terrorism and low job security, what gives you hope? Do you look at the future with a sense of fear and trembling? Perhaps even gloom and despair? Well, so that you don't feel totally suicidal right at the start, do chat with someone near you and uh, maybe just think about how you would answer somebody who was despairing in the world and, and what you would say to maybe give them a bit of a boost. Now, I don't know what sort of answers you came up with, but um, I would be interested to know if anybody here attempted to give a two-minute Bible overview. Well, that's interesting, and I'm not entirely surprised at all. But I think actually maybe by the end of today, that might become more of your instinct. Because the truth is, the Bible is actually rather a, a foreign book, even for those of us who know little bits of it well. And we fail to see the overarching thrust. Now, I've asked his permission to tell this story. And I would never do something like this without getting permission. A few years before we actually moved to go and live in Uganda, uh, we were trying to get my son Joshua, he was only two at the time, uh, to talk on the phone to my sister-in-law, who'd already moved to Kampala. And um, so I held up the phone to Joshua's ear. He's only two, okay, at that point. And Lucy, my sister-in-law at the other end in Kampala, was trying to get him to, um, to say hello and, and talk. You know, he'd never actually spoken on a phone before. And Joshua, poor chap, he looked really confused about this. And so after a moment or two of hearing Lucy live from Kampala, he suddenly went, hello, phone. (laughs) Now, that's perfectly logical, isn't it? He hasn't a clue what this thing is, and here is this funny machine talking to him. He had no idea that actually it was a means of communicating across continents. Fine, no problem. And yet I think we're a bit like that with the Bible. Yeah, we sort of look at it and we think, yeah, this is all quite interesting. But we don't see that actually there is an overarching purpose and that it is written as a means of communication by none other than the creator of the universe. He wants to say something. Now, yes, we I guess if you've been coming to All Souls a while, you know that that's what we're supposed to think. But sometimes I wouldn't be at all surprised if you'd be reading a bit of it and you think, well, what on earth has that got to do with that? How does that fit in? You know, what type of foods you should or shouldn't eat had to do with God, the creator of the universe, communicating to me. You see, just as Joshua treated that phone as a machine, not as a means of relationship, so we treat the Bible as any old book. But I hope that after today, your instincts will certainly have deepened and changed so that you'll have such confidence in the Bible that it, as it holds together that actually you cannot but have hope Because I think the Bible ultimately, at one level, is a means to confidence and hope. Hope in God, the God who speaks. Now, there's a sort of motto verse that I want to use. Romans 15, verse 4. For everything that was written in the past, in other words, he's talking about what we call the Old Testament, or the Jewish Bible, the Jewish Scriptures. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. This is Paul writing to Jewish converts and Gentile converts in Rome. It was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So Paul is saying that's what the Bible is. That's what it's for. It's striking, isn't it? It's written to teach us. That's pretty peculiar. I think it's not uh, impossible to extend that by uh, logically to those of us sitting here. This means that the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, are Christian. 
They're not fundamentally or simply exclusively Jewish at all. They're Christian, which is why it's not just we allow them and accept them to be in the Bible, it's why they are the fundamental core of the Bible. It is to teach us to have hope in following Christ. And having hope, you see, will give you two side effects, two knock-on effects. The first is endurance, keeping going. Now, you may think that the prospect of five one-hour talks in one day is going to be a test of endurance. And you would be right. It's going to be hard work. But uh, Paul is talking about staying the distance until the day we die or the day Jesus returns. And that's going to be tough. And there are going to be days when you really feel like jacking it in and thinking, I just can't carry on. And the Bible was written to give you hope so that you endure. I mean, you endure because of what you read in the Scriptures, because of the truths you find there. You think, okay, things are tough, but yes, it is true. So I'm going to carry on. And then encouragement. Because of what we read, we can be encouraged in our walk. And there are a huge number of wonderful things about being a Christian in the here and now, as well as in the future, as we're going to unpack. And the scriptures encourage us with these truths again and again. Now, how are these related to hope? Well, as we've hinted, you will only endure to the end because you know what's at the end. Otherwise, you give up, don't you? You despair of thinking that there's any point. If there's no end in sight, you think, I can't carry on with this. And that's the point. It's all about knowing the long-term future. It's about having confidence. It's about certainties, not possibilities. Now, many people think that hope is wishful thinking. I, for instance, hope that I get a Ferrari from my wife for my birthday in December. But that's a fairly forlorn hope, (laughs) believe it or not. Uh, Rachel and I are only church workers. We also have a joint bank account, and I also know what's in it, or rather what's not in it. And my hopes and dreams of having a Ferrari along Portland Place, parked outside every lecture I give, will just have to stay there as idle dreams. But Christian hope is different, you see. It's about certainty for the future, a certainty that the Bible wants us all to share. Paul talks about having the full assurance of faith, not just wishful thinking, but confidence. So as we piece all the different parts of the Bible jigsaw together, I hope that you'll get as excited as I am about this, because the whole Bible is designed to give us and to strengthen us in this confidence in God and his purposes for the universe. It puts us in our place, but it puts us on solid ground. Now, every now and then, we'll do some study in little groups uh, around the room. Uh, but also, I've put some sort of little blocks of verses for you to sort of study on your own and follow up. Because inevitably, I'm just going to sort of dab here, there, and everywhere, and um, in no way going to be able to do justice to everything I talk about. In fact, hardly any of it. It's just going to be, as I said at the beginning, wetting your appetites. So I've put some verses there for personal Bible study. And maybe over the next, I don't know, days, weeks or whatever, you can use some of these uh, for your quiet times or something. But anyway, whatever um, suits you. Now, there are a number of different ways of uh, cutting the Bible cake, if you like. And you can sort of cut it horizontally or vertically. So vertically, you can take, right, I'm going to take the theme of the land and follow that all the way through. Or you can take it chronologically, so from beginning to end. And that's, in a sense, what we're going to do today. But even as you take it chronologically, there are so many different strands to it. Actually, you can follow a different theme from beginning to end. And so I'm not saying that this is the only way, but I do think that this is one of the best ways. And that is to trace the concept of God's kingdom from Genesis to Revelation. Many people talk about kingdom, don't they? People talk about having a kingdom theology or... 
you know, the signs of the kingdom or this, that and the other. And I think a lot of the time they assume perhaps that the, the idea of the kingdom of God is a New Testament invention and that somehow it's something new that Jesus came up with or even perhaps Paul for those who are ultra skeptical. And we'll find that that's absolute nonsense. It's right at the heart of God's plans pretty much from the beginning. But also, I think what we will do is, as so often we need to do, is to give Bible words Bible meanings. That's a really important principle. There are all kinds of strange and sometimes complex ideas in the Bible. You know, words like redemption, justification, salvation, all these funny words. And it's no good looking up in an Oxford English Dictionary to see what they mean. Because they might be useful to tell you what they mean in the newspaper. And they might have biblical roots, but they don't necessarily tell you what those words mean and how people use them today. No, we need to be careful to understand Bible concepts in a biblical way. And that's why I think, again, a Bible overview is so crucial and so important, because it helps us to do just that. Okay, so what I want to do is to take this idea of kingdom... And it's one that Vaughan takes, and he's not the one who, who came up with it. It's a number of different theologians have, have worked this out. Vaughan has done a great job simplifying it, and I'm going to try and simplify it even more in just a few sessions. So that's what we're going to do. Well, where are we going to start? Genesis 1. And you'll notice that to give a sort of, I would say, a full sense of security, we're going to start very slowly. So we're not going to move out of first gear, but I guarantee that by the time we get to the end of the afternoon, uh, we're going to be in infinity gear. It's going to just get faster and faster, and you've just got to have your wits about you. Okay, but Genesis 1, Genesis is not a scientific textbook. It is written to teach theology. In other words, it is written, it exists, to tell us about God. So what do we learn about God? One, we learn of the God who's there. It's a great phrase of Francis Schaeffer, the God who is there. He is a given. Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God. No explanations, no justifications, nothing to go on, just a bald, immense statement. In the beginning, God. He just is. And he is the subject of everything that will happen in this book. History is quite literally his story. So that the principal character in the, of this whole book is introduced in the very first few words. God. He is the hero of the book. That is crucial when you open the Bible at any point, whether it's in the book of the Judges and you're looking at the story of Samson or Paul's missionary journeys or, or whatever it might be. Now, they're not the heroes very often the people involved are the anti-heroes. Now, there are many people to be respected and so on, but the bottom line is all the way through, wherever you open it up, God is the subject and the hero. Even in that strange book in the Old Testament, Esther, where the word God isn't even mentioned once. What do we learn about this God? Secondly, he's a God who speaks. And when he speaks, he speaks with authority. We can assume, therefore, that people don't need to grope around trying to work out what he's like. He speaks. Well, that's a bit of an understatement. There is awesome power and authority when he speaks. This is absolute sovereignty. Because when he speaks, things happen. He said, let there be light. And you know what? There was. And he does it again and again and again and again. For the land, the stars, the vegetation, the animals, the birds, and so on and so on and so on. Just like a click of the fingers. He speaks, things happen. 
Now, we can understand that in a sort of rather derived way. You know, a, a king or a, a president, you know, can basically just say, do this for me, and people will go running. But God does it just like that. He doesn't need minions. He doesn't need anything else. And he can create out of nothing. And it just like that. What else do we learn from Genesis? From what he's made, there is a world of incredible order and diversity and variety, beauty, wonder. And this is simple in the point uh, that is displayed as the way that chapter 1 has everything structured. And in some ways, chapter 1 is written like poetry. Because you can see each day forming a sort of verse or a stanza in the poem. And there are similarities in each one, aren't there? You know, and God said, da, 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 and there was, and it was, blah, blah, blah. So there's clearly an, a, a structure in, in the way it's written, and I think this is a reflection of, and that in itself is teaching us about the nature of the universe, that God has made it with this order. And I think there's something very interesting that you can see when you uh, lay it out like that. Day one, you have the light. Day two, the waters separated the sky, uh, and the sky is created. It's very hard to visualize what that means but I don't suppose it matters too much. Day three, dry ground and vegetation. So in a sense, you could say there the environment for life is created. And in the second half, you have the things that inhabit it. So the lights, the sun and the moon, the fish and the birds and the waters and the sky and living creatures and culminating in humanity. He's got it all planned. And this structure is simply making that point. Everything's in its right place. And what's more, there's a little phrase that comes again and again and again and again. Verse 9, verse 12, verse 18, you see what it is? And God saw that it was good. That's the conclusion of the matter. It's good, it's perfect. Such is the craftsmanship of the creator of the universe. It's teaching us theology. And in fact, you could argue that this uh, chapter is a polemic. It's, it's an argument against many of the pagan views of the world where basically you had creation coming into being almost by accident as a result of an argument between two divinities and things are chaotic, things are all over the place and um, there's no one creator. And Genesis 1 is saying, absolutely not. So there's one God who is there, who speaks, things come into power, there's purpose, there's order and it's good. And this perfection, this goodness, is displayed in two ways, two pinnacles. The first pinnacle is humanity, chapter 1, verse 27. As human beings, we're integrally linked to creation, but we are distinct from creation. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We together, both male and female, are uniquely made in the image of God. And as such, we represent the summit or the pinnacle of God's created order. I don't want to go into too much detail of what that means. I think it's very complicated. And all kinds of things get poured into this little concept of being made in the image of God. Sometimes you think, yeah, well, that might be right. But actually, very often, it's guesswork. We just have to be slightly careful, I think. But what is interesting is that that means there is a continuity between us and the rest of creation. So I sometimes think of it, you know, in terms of, you know, God came up with the idea of two eyes, a nose, and one mouth, and two ears. And he sort of, you know, took out a patent on that and used it in all kinds of different ways. So it's interesting, isn't it, that you find this in, in, across the animal kingdom. And, you know, to be frank, I'm not surprised that there are genetic similarities with apes and chimps and all of that. Of course not. God had a good idea and he thought, well, I can use this again. What difference does that make? 
Yeah, of course there are similarities. There are all kinds of similarities between me and an amoeba or something. But there's a major, major difference. And that is that we, male and female, are made in the image of God. The second pinnacle, he's made humanity, then he makes, or has, rest. By the seventh day, verse 2 of chapter 2, God had finished the work he'd been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work, and God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it he rested from all his work and creating that he had done. God does not rest because he's tired, or he just needs to take the weight of his, his legs or something. He doesn't need to put his feet up and read the paper. Now, it's not rest in that sense. It's rest because there's nothing left to do. It's finished. He's done his work. His work is perfect. And I think we can see that perfection in terms of the relationships that lie at the heart of this order, this perfection. One, we've already sort of hinted at it, and that is between God and humanity, these people that he has made. We are together created in God's image. And one of the things it must mean is that we have a unique capacity to relate to our creator. We have intimacy with him. And this is hinted at with that wonderful picture in chapter 3. And it is picture language. It's impossible to understand completely what it would look like necessarily. But God is there walking through the garden, you know, in the cool of an evening, after the hot day is over and, you know, the sun is going down. And he's looking for the man and the woman. Now, whatever else is going on there, that at the very least is a picture of intimate relationship. The creator of the God having a chat with his mates. The implication is clear, is access and friendship. A wonderful situation. So a perfect vertical relationship, but then a sort of horizontal relationship between humanity themselves. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 18. I wonder if you've sort of thought about it like this. You're reading through, you've just read chapter 1, you think, wow, this is just amazing. And suddenly there is a complete shock. It's like a sort of sudden lightning bolt on a clear day. It doesn't quite make sense. In God's perfect creation, there is suddenly something that's not good, which is pretty weird, isn't it? And what is not good? It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And what you find is is a prototype marriage relationship here. But it points even deeper than that. It points to the fact that actually you can be everything that the world has to offer. You can be living in a perfect world. You can have everything provided for you by God in a world without sin or corruption or suffering or anything. You can have it all and still be alone. And that's not good. And God in his goodness provides what we need, one another. Now, of course... In terms of how we unpack the whole idea of relationships and marriage and singleness and hopes and dreams and all of these things, you know, you can't leave it here. There's a whole load of other stuff in the rest of the Bible to come to try and unpack all this. But this is the bottom line. This is the blueprint, if you like. And God is good. And in his perfect relationship, there is a perfect relationship between the people that he has made. Initially, of course, between a man and a woman, but ultimately, ideally not restricted to the marriage relationship. So whether we're married or not, there's still a vital principle of aloneness, let alone loneliness, not being an ideal. Thirdly, humanity and creation. God gave the man and the woman a vital role, verse 28 of chapter 1, to subdue the creation. 
Now, that has very negative overtones, particularly in the light of sort of environmental catastrophe that's around the corner and all of this sort of stuff. And the idea of subduing the creation sounds terrible. Many people in the environmental lobby actually blame a Judeo-Christian worldview for what we've done to the world. And to some extent, there are certain strands of Judeo-Christianity that should take responsibility in large part because it's very much seen the world as just a resource to exploit. Whereas actually that's not what God says in creation. It's about taking responsibilities for creation, for looking after it. It's about being God's agents, if you like, in his world that he's made, caring for it with his delegated authority. And that is why Adam is called on to name the animals. I mean, that's a very peculiar thing, isn't it? But that's a, that's a graphic symbol of God saying, okay, I'm going to give you some responsibility here. You get on and look after this place. So, so, so what have we got? A world of wonderful variety, color, beauty, provision, above all, freedom. There's only one restriction in the middle of this. One tiny restriction. Verse 16 of chapter 2. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you'll surely die. Now, I don't know how you instinctively react to God saying that, but my guess is that we think our instinct, before we've actually sort of worked it all out, our instinct is to think, God, why did you have to do it? What were you on? Imagine that the garden is the size of England. You can go anywhere you like. It's yours. Do you like mountains? Well, we don't quite have mountains in this country. We've just got a few sort of hillocks. Do you like lakes? Do you like beaches? Got them? Do you like meadows? Cotswolds? Just imagine you could go anywhere and look after it, but there's just one tree in the middle of Birmingham. Now, God says if you eat of that, then there are serious consequences. But you can go anywhere else. You can eat from any tree you like. Now, if you eat of that tree, you'll die. What do you think? Is God a spoil sport? <laughs> is he stingy? Does he just want to limit our fun and just tell us we're wrong all the time? Now, chat with the, someone near you just for a few minutes and think of friends at home or at college or at work or, or whatever, friends who are not uh, believers, and, and, and they think, well, what, how do they view God? Why do people think that God is a killjoy? How would you answer someone who thought that God was a killjoy. Any, any thoughts? It's interesting, you see, I think what I'm trying to get at in Genesis 2 is that God is remarkably non-restrictive, remarkably generous in providing, in offering, and basically the bottom line is there's incredible freedom, and actually it's not restrictive if he says, if you eat of this tree, you'll die. I mean, that's actually quite helpful, isn't it? That's quite a good thing. I mean, you know, I cannot breathe underwater, nor can you. So it'd be silly to try. You know, it, you can't say it limits my freedom that I can't breathe underwater. It's just my biology. If I tried, I'd die. It's not good for me. Now, I'm free to do it at one level, but I'd be stupid, wouldn't I? I just want to just get this right very clear at the start, and that is that basically, you know, God is good. And that's Genesis 1 and 2 have been ramming that point home. He's good, he's wonderful, he's generous in all kinds of ways. And he's interested in welfare of those he's made. That's the whole point, you know, about the not good of being alone business. He doesn't have to do that. But there's pastoral concern in that, isn't there? This is what God is like. He's good. Don't let anyone dispel you of that. 
Let's sum this up so far. God's people, God's place, God's rule. Those are three elements of what God's kingdom contains. What make up God's kingdom. God's people, God's place, and God's rule. Well, who are God's people at the beginning? Well, obvious, Adam and Eve. Where is God's place? Well, it's the Garden of Eden, but also the universe, really. But God's place in that, you know, in the garden, they, they do have access to this sovereign creator. They can talk to him. And God's rule, well, it's very simple. Don't eat from one tree. That's all. And the rule there is a blessing, isn't it? It's a blessing. It's a protection. It's a boundary. It's saying, don't do this. It's in your interest to stay. But don't think God is restrictive or cruel or mean or spiteful. He's given you a garden the size of England or whatever it is. Now, we've gone very slowly. We're going to put the accelerator down in just a moment. But it's absolutely essential that we have these building blocks in place. There are a whole load of other things that one could say about Genesis 1 and 2 and all kinds of things that one can read in as a result of the New Testament and so on. I'm deliberately not doing that, partly because of time, but also because I want to follow the Bible story as it tells it. Unpacking piece by piece and just seeing where it takes us. So, so far, we know that there is a God who's in control, who's given order to the universe. That is the grounds of our worldview, if we want a biblical one. Secondly, we know that human beings are not here by chance. We know that there was a beginning. We know where we've come from and that we have a purpose and a God to relate to. Actually, even in these two chapters, do you see, we're beginning to understand a lot about ourselves, aren't we? But there are other pieces of the puzzle to put in place because obviously you can't stay there. Because you and I look out of the window, we read the front pages, we see the TV news, and we realize that actually it's not quite the same today. Something's happened to make things change. So what went wrong? Well, I've called this the destruction of God's kingdom. There's a parallel between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 3-1. Just as the whole book begins in a mysterious way, so Genesis 3 begins in a mysterious way. Just listen to how it goes. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now don't you think that's weird? Just as with God, so with Satan. No explanations, no justifications, just a statement of the serpent's existence. No less, no more. And boy, does this get the brain cells whirring. All we know is that he was made by God, but that he's also very crafty. That's all we know so far. He's a creature with cunning. And of course, the story of the chapter will prove that. It's not to say, though, that God created evil. Far from it. But there's a mystery here. Just as humanity rebels against a good God, as we all see, so we must assume that Satan or the serpent has already done so. You can't blame God for either of those things, so don't. So let's see what the serpent does. And there's a process of temptation. And he's brilliant. He is brilliant. Never underestimate his cunning. He's ingenious. It's a very brief story. You know it well, but just think it through. The first thing he says in verse 1, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now what's he doing? Well, not a lot in one sense. I guess if you pushed him and asked him to justify why he'd asked the question, he'd say, oh, I was, I was just asking a simple question, you know, just for clarification. But of course, that couldn't be further from the truth. He's, his question sows seeds, deliberately, of doubt. But do you notice the deliberate mistake? Have a look. What's the deliberate mistake? 
He says you must not eat from any tree. What does that demand? Well, it demands a correction, doesn't it? But do you see what sort of sense is being fed in here? A sense of God as a killjoy. This is the sort of God who doesn't let you eat from any tree. He gives you all these trees. You can't eat from any of them. What sort of God is that? What a stinge bag. If that's what your friends think of God, then you can smell the sulfur fumes all over it. God is no killjoy. He's incredibly generous. But what's happening is that it's doubting God's word. Secondly, verse 2, this is what comes out of it. The woman said to the serpent, and rightly so, she has to correct, we may eat from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. Spot the not-so-deliberate mistake. Don't touch it. Where did that come from? Who said anything about touching? God didn't. What's that? It's a distortion of God's word. Do you see she's wobbling slightly? It's all part of the ploy. She corrects him, of course, and that's the right thing to do, but she's slightly thrown off guard. God said nothing about touching, but do you see that just fits in slightly with the idea of God being restrictive? It's adding to God's rules. It doesn't matter if you touch it. Now, you'd be pretty silly to touch it. There's no reason to touch it. But God didn't say if you touch it, you'll suddenly keel over. The seeds of doubt have taken root. Finally, the seeds of rebellion are not far off. Verse 4. You will not surely die. The serpent's going in for the kill. A total denial of God's word. Now, the bottom question now is, who are you going to believe? Satan, the serpent, who says you will not die. God, the creator of the universe, who says you will die. Who are you going to believe? That's the choice, isn't it? Whose word do you take for it? That's an obvious question. You don't take a creature over the creator. The creator ought to know. He's the one who designed it. Now, don't ask me how a computer works inside. I haven't a clue. Talk to the person who made it. So why believe the snake? Well, to see why it happened, we must ask ourselves, what's the big attraction? Have a think about this. What was the big attraction? What was the temptation? I mean, she's gone through this process, but it's not just that, you know, she's got her words in a muddle. What's the big attraction? Just have a look at those verses and see what you come up with. What's the big attraction? Desire for gaining wisdom. Now, that seems like a good idea, doesn't it? We all want to gain wisdom. You know, I don't think I'm particularly wise, and I'd quite like to have a bit more wisdom, so that's a good thing. What's the problem with that? What's the sort of appeal of that? I remember seeing a documentary about Madonna a few years ago. It's fascinating. She was talking about her Catholic upbringing in New York. And one particular moment when she really stuck in my mind, it was probably 15 years ago, maybe more, I can't remember. And she was talking about uh, what the Garden of Eden meant. And she basically said that the eating of the apple, notice most people think it's an apple, it could be banana or pomegranate or anything. We're not actually told what type of fruit it is. Let's call it the banana for now, just to sort of subvert a few ideas. But anyway, she thought it was an apple, and she said that the eating of the apple means one thing, and that's sex. Uh, do you remember there was an advert for apple ties not so long ago? And playing on the, it was probably about five years ago, I suppose, on TV, playing on the idea of, you know, a, an apple, and you have these sort of beautiful naked couple in the garden, just covered by a few sort of well-chosen leaves, and uh, the, the woman reaches up, and instead of an apple, there's a bottle of apple ties on the thing. And it's just taking the whole idea, and of course it's all about sex, as far as they're concerned. And uh, I guess the idea is that apple ties will do wonders for your sex life or something. I have no idea. But the point is that it's very common in the way people think these days, isn't it? 
And certainly some Christians over the years had a very poor and low view of physicality and sex in its right place even at all, which is actually a denial of God's good creation, isn't it? It's a good thing sex was God's idea. And we find that actually Adam and Eve had sex in chapter 2, or is a clear hint, isn't it? And it was very good. So that can't be right. That's not the root of all evil. And actually Genesis 3 tells us what it's all about. The attraction is the knowledge of good and evil. Eating the fruit leads to that. And if you have that, you'll be like God, which must be a bad thing in this sense because that leads to death. So that's got to be bad, isn't it? So I think there are sort of three basic options to what it means. Knowing good and evil exist. You know, knowledge in that sense. I know that there is such a thing as good and evil. Well, actually, that doesn't get you anywhere. Because they knew what was evil before. What God forbids by definition is wrong, is evil. So that can't be it. Perhaps it's experiencing good and evil, knowing good and evil firsthand. Well, that doesn't quite fit either, because basically, what's the attraction in that? Yeah, of course we want to experience good, but why would you want to experience evil? And what is so godlike about experiencing evil? See, it doesn't make any sense at all. That can't be it either. Perhaps it's determining good and evil. Ah, that's more like it. Knowing good and evil in the sense of deciding what is right and wrong. Deciding what is good and evil. Now, that is something that God uniquely does, isn't it? He's the one who made the blueprint of the earth and the world and our lives, and he knows how they function best. He's the one who said, right, this is right and this is wrong. But the attraction of knowing good and evil in the sense of determining it is actually a very strong one, isn't it? But you're saying, I don't want somebody else calling the shots. I want to. I want to be God in my life. I want to be number one. I do what I want, when I want, how I want. This is the, um, the struggle for autonomy for being number one, for being the ruler of my life, and hopefully anyone else who gets in the way. In other words, ultimately, it is a declaration of independence from the Creator, saying, I know better than him about leading my own life. Now, do you see the attraction? Do you see why this is actually quite a big carrot to dangle in front of them? And why this might possibly lead to death? Because basically, you're tearing up the, the Maker's instructions for how to live in the world, and if you do that, it's not surprising you're going to get into trouble. You know, I sometimes use the silly illustration of a CD player and a toaster. If you wanted to listen to music, you don't put a piece of bread in your CD player. Likewise, if you want toast, you don't put a CD into your toaster. Now, I don't know what the booklets that come with CD players actually say. I'd be very surprised if they said, do not put bread in here. But if you do, you'll have problems. I mean, it's a crass illustration, isn't it? But it sort of makes the point, I hope. You go by the maker's instructions. It's folly not to. No wonder disaster's going to happen if you, if you go against them. And yet, because of the temptation being so strong, the benefits appear to outweigh the consequences. God said you will die. Satan says you won't. Believing the lie is a price worth paying for sin. This is what the Bible calls sin. Going it alone against your creator. I'm going to race through the last two few bits very, very quickly because... It's just to give you a sort of thumbnail sketch. But basically, what has happened? What does the future hold? Well, in creation, there was a very clear order, not just in terms of how the creation was made up, but in terms of um, having God at the top with humanity at the pinnacle of creation, but under God. 
relating to him in a unique way, but but still under his authority. Now, what happens is that that gets reversed in the fall. Creation embodied by the serpent. Do you remember it said, more crafty than all the animals that the Lord God had made. He's part of creation, not in the image of God, unlike us. He takes over, if you like, and takes charge and starts being the one to speak to the woman and the man and they overthrow God. So basically the whole thing's turned on its head. The man and the woman follow the creator. It is a culpable rebellion. Now don't start any nonsense about it all being the woman's fault. If there's anyone who is more to blame, it's the man. He's the one that God had told directly about how to live in this garden. And, you know, if you take the chronology of it very tightly, and I don't know necessarily when, whether one should, but, it, you know, in Genesis 2, he's given these rules, and then the woman is made. So it's presumably his responsibility to let her know. They say, you know, hi, wife, it's great to have you here. Uh, really pleased, but by the way, don't eat from that tree. Okay, that was a simple job, not a big deal. But more to the point, when she is tempted, we find in chapter 3, verse 6, he is standing right there. He's a complete lemon and doesn't say a word. He watches it all happen. So if the man had a responsibility for her to let her know what's going on, in a sense, that's been reversed as well. If anyone's more to blame for the fall, it's him. But in a sense, it's not a very helpful discussion to portion blame more or less to either. They both do what they want. They both want to do it. That's the point. And the creator is rejected. By the time you get to the end of chapter 3, though, you realize both the folly of it and the futility of it. It's stupid, but it doesn't get you anywhere. Because God is still God. He's the God who is there. And he reasserts or simply just reminds them of his sovereignty by saying this has consequences. And that is why there is judgment on the the creatures who had been in league together against him. And God separates them out, hence the enmity between the serpent and the woman. And the sex war has begun. It didn't begin in the 60s. It began in Genesis 3. And the responsibilities for creation have become a slog. Death enters into humanity's experience. The serpent was not right. God was, and that is why the tree is barred. And you have the flashing sword. You cannot have rebellious sinners living forever. So they cannot get to the tree of life, the other great tree in the garden. The sword flashes past to prevent them from getting there. Death is the wages of sin, as God said it was. But there are a few surprises, and I'm going to really motor just in the last minute. There are a few surprises. One is, Adam and Eve don't die. Have you thought about that before? To begin with, it looks as though the snake was right. They're still alive. God preserves their lives. He even gives them clothes. They didn't need them before, but now they do because they're embarrassed. It's a remarkable sign of intimate care, even after they've kicked him in the teeth, isn't it? And then what we have is something that means that Genesis 3 is not the end of the story. Verse 15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Just a little glimmer of something to come. You see, the Bible could have ended at Genesis 3, couldn't it? And that would have been that. Game over, end of story. We live in a world of sin. God's condemned it. That's it. But actually, there's a glimmer of hope. And you could say that from now on, the rest of the Bible story is the search for the serpent crusher. At every juncture, we're asking, is this the one? Now, what I want to stop you doing is immediately say, I know who it is. Don't. You don't know who the answer is because you don't know how it goes on. 
Who is the serpent crusher? In the midst of total disaster, there are grounds for hope, and that is the constant running theme of the Bible. In the midst of disaster, there is hope. Why? Because of what God does, what he promises, and this is crucial. Hope rests on promise, because you know what's to come. And the idea is that one day the implications of the fall will be reversed. So Genesis closes with God's people being banished. Sin is named and must be judged. But God is merciful. He shows compassion even for rebels. And humanity is now born outside the garden. Sin is universal experience as is death. It's not what God wanted. And what you find in Genesis 4 to 11 is sin taking its grip ever tighter. You have Cain and Abel. The first death in the Bible is not natural. It's fratricide. And then Genesis 5, you have the drumbeat of death, this genealogy. Normally genealogies don't have a mention of the fact that somebody dies, do they? Well, that's assumed. You have somebody's parents, fine. But in a genealogy, you don't say, and then he died, 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 and then he died. Do you see that in Genesis 5? It's very odd. Of course he died. Well, no, not of course he died. This is a consequence of the fall. So yes, death did happen. It was a delayed effect, but it was a reality. Then you have Genesis 6 with the flood. God saw how great man's wickedness has become, and this is a terrible thing. He was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. What a terrible thing. And then you have the tower in chapter 11, tantamount to insurrection. Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Let us build ourselves a city so that we can make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole world. So God judges them and scatters them. And yet in the midst of judgment, there is grace. God protects Cain with a mark so that he wouldn't suffer the same fate. Noah is protected and rescued in the midst of judgment. He's not removed. He doesn't have to, he doesn't sort of hide away. He has to sort of survive through the midst of it, but he still survives purely as a result of God's mercy. But the question is, and this is the question that dominates the rest of the Bible, Will God's kingdom be restored? If so, how?